No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. small community struggling to find qualified tradespeople? Are you looking for someone to do some work for you? Or are you a business owner hunting for certified employees? Recently, Canada's federal government announced a call for proposals from organizations that train and support folks from underrepresented groups, including women in the trades and non-traditional professions. According to the latest research, just 5% of registered tradespeople which that umbrella includes hairstyling and aesthetics, just 5% are women. Michelle Vindham approached me about a call she put out for female roofers to replace her own heritage roof and how that grew into a movement and the creation of a group of women roofers called Summit Sisters. This got me thinking about other non-traditional professions that women work in across Canada. This conversation includes a researcher based out of Newfoundland and Labrador, a female fish harvester also based in Newfoundland and Labrador, a woman exterminator that decided to go into business for herself in rural Manitoba, and Michelle, an ecological farmer in eastern Ontario. They all talk about the experience of women in non-traditional roles and some of the reasons why women hesitate to go into the industries. Also, how women struggle to be treated as equals, both by their peers and by their employers, leading many women to go into business for themselves. The researcher is Heather Elliott. She's a former heritage worker and current graduate student who resides in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Originally from Ontario, Heather grew up fascinated with ships and shipwrecks, always eager to learn about why people went to sea for a living. 
She started the blog Original Shipster in 2011 to share her love of Canadian maritime history. Currently, she is completing her master's degree in sociocultural anthropology on gender in the maritime sector, investigating how someone's gender presentation impacts their life at work. She found a variety of ways that gender shapes not only physical, but the audio spaces that surround individuals and that these experiences are quite different between men and women. Jasmine Paul is a fish harvester on Placentia Bay, Newfoundland, and based out of Come by Chance. She refers to Mun in the interview, which is the Memorial University of Newfoundland, a place where she studied for a Bachelor of Arts and occasionally teaches. Susie Rayner is the owner-operator of Valkyrie Pest Solutions in Gimli, Manitoba. She started a career in pest management eight years ago after experiencing bed bugs and cockroaches in her own residence. Pest control quickly became a passionate career for Susie. She found that she seemed to give her customers something that set her apart. Was it her lived experience with pests herself or... Was there something different in her approach as a woman? And Michelle Vindham is the owner of Plainfield Heritage Farm in Eastern Ontario. She talks about the Summit Sisters. Uh, the originator is Samantha Decoto. Michelle is an ecological farmer, former social worker, who specialized in violence against women. Michelle sought to use her need for a new roof as a venue to promote women in the non-traditional trades. 13 women came from across Canada to do her roof. Since this interview, I came across something called Kick-Ass Careers, which encourages Canadian women to learn about and engage in a long list of trades. I'll be sure to include it in the show notes. Welcome, ladies. I am so thrilled to have you all together. I think we'll start... With Heather, you are studying or have studied women in non-traditional roles and in the trades and in a, a particular interest in women in roles in the marine industry. And what possesses a person to do that? So I'll give you a, a bit of backstory about me, I suppose. So I actually grew up in Ontario and I moved out to Newfoundland for work about 10 years ago. And um, I had always had a fascination with maritime history, loved watching the Lakers come up and down Lake Ontario, devoured every book I could on the subject. So moving out uh, next to the ocean and living on a functioning like ocean going harbor uh, was fantastic for me. And so I started actually my blog, Original Shipster, which was me researching Canadian maritime history and writing articles about the stories I was finding from across Canada. Because uh, if there's a body of water, I guarantee you there's a wreck in it. From there, began actually interviewing folks who were in uh, port on interesting vessels that I saw in the harbor. And I realized over three years of uh, doing these interviews that I'd only interviewed four women. A lot of the mm. deckhands, the first engineers, the captains, uh, they were all men. And the two women, two of the women I interviewed, you know, they were comms people and another one worked in housekeeping. So those are traditionally female roles when you look at the maritime sector. And around 2017, I decided to go back to school to do my uh, master's degree. And I sort of combined my interest in 
gender issues and, uh, you know, the question, where are all the women uh, into my academic research. So I decided to look specifically at gender in the maritime sector. And I interviewed men and women from uh, a variety of marine-based lines of work. So fishers, plant workers, marine engineers, naval architects. I was fortunate enough to actually interview the captain of a uh, federal vessel as well, and uh, some labor folks, and really began to kind of piece together the trends that I was seeing across all of these different workplaces, which really the the common ground that they had was that they were part of the maritime sector, like the industrial trade sector. And uh, yeah, so I'm currently uh, finishing my thesis. Uh, All the research is done, all the data has been crunched, all that good stuff. I'm just, you know, dotting my I's and crossing my T's. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what brought me to that point was it was a hobby that I turned into academic research that has turned into a passion of mine. And what can you tell us about the research? So you said you've you've collected all the data. Can you give us some of that research? Can you give us kind of a sneak peek? Sure. So what I what I ended up looking at after I uh, I did over 20 interviews and uh, once I had gone through and, and did all my transcriptions and everything, two main themes were coming out for me. And one of them was how gender shapes physical space and also how gender shapes uh, audio space, and particularly how men and women experience those two things differently. So when it comes to physical space with women, it was looking at things like um, I had one participant who was hired and her as a naval architect, and her boss told her one of the reasons he advocated for her was because if they hired her, they wouldn't have to put in a second bathroom, because all of the office staff were women. And if they had hired a naval architect who was a man, that meant they had to put in a second bathroom. Um, I had another woman who was a a fisher, and Jasmine might be able to to speak more to this, but she talked about some of the physiological things that she had to do to prepare for long-term fishing trips, like um, timing her birth control so she didn't get her period while she was on board because there were no facilities to manage that um, on the small vessel she was on. or. Uh, what sports bra could she wear for two weeks straight? Um, and there were these ideas that these are actual ways that women are are shaping their bodies to occupy these spaces. Mm. Um, whereas when I interviewed men from the exact same fields, they had no idea. As far as they were concerned, the fact that there were more women in the spaces was an indication that gender wasn't a problem, that gender equity wasn't an issue. Because while well, women can get jobs here, and it's like, yeah, but they have to do a lot more work to occupy those spaces than you do. So that was the the physical aspect. And then I came across this incredible, um, a lot of, there was a lot of my participants that were talking about things like volume, voice, certain behaviors of their male uh, peers where they were allowed to get emotional and allowed to get angry. But if, if the women did that, then they were seen as being emotional and angry and I don't know if I can swear, but bitchy. Um, and uh, so there was this double standard, which I think we're all probably familiar with. I came across this term called sonic patriarchy, which was uh, created by the scholar uh, Rebecca Lentis. And it actually, she calls it the, um, the audio equivalent of the male gaze. So the way that uh, women's ears or uh, female presenting individual people's ears tweak themselves to screen out things like catcalls or abusive language or certain behaviors and how that contributes to how we 
ourselves change our voices, how we code switch to use certain language when we're in certain spaces so that we're taken seriously. Um, so that those two things sort of, they were consistent across every sector. It didn't matter. It wasn't like they were more prevalent in one than the other. It was across the board. These were things that were coming up. And so that was what I pulled on. And that's really what my research focuses on is how someone's presented gender impacts how the physical space and the audio space around them responds to them and how they can shape it. Fascinating. That is fascinating. I That's really exciting research. Um, and, and I saw a lot of nodding. I can almost hear Jasmine nodding, as a, as a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> Jasmine, do you want to comment first? I saw Susie nodding as well. So uh, Jasmine, do you want to comment on on what Heather Heather's research um, and, and results have been? Uh, yeah. So the bathroom issue especially uh, stuck out for me. Uh, we use two boats. One is an open deck speedboat, so there's no bathroom there for anybody. And our other boat is a Cape Island lobster boat uh, that we bought uh, from someone in Cape Breton. Uh, so when we bought that boat, it was only it was all male crew who were using that. So they just had like a half door for a bathroom. So my dad mm -hmm. uh, had to build a new bathroom with like a really functioning toilet and like a private space since it's me and my mom, like the half of the crew is women. Um, so I was really grateful that, you know, he took the time to build that to give us a bit more comfort. Uh, we can be out sometimes for three uh, 13 hours at a time and you never really know like how much you might need to use the bathroom. So sure. it is nice to be able to you know, have a place, but still like you have to take off all of your clothes, like pretty much everything that you're wearing has to come off. Um, and it's not always easy, like especially when the boat is moving and there's waves like to try to get everything put back on. So that is still a challenge. Um, but at least there is a private space where, you know, you can close the door and now you won't get so cold and things like that. But then when it comes to the issue of the speedboat, um, you know, for the men, they can just open their fly, no trouble. But for me and my mom, like, we either have to hold it or get really creative. Um, but there's been times where, like, you know, I, I just can't pee in a bucket next to my dad. So, like, once I did have to get him to like, put me off on a beach, he's like, just go in the bucket. I'll turn around. And I was like, please, no. <laughs> so he put me off on a beach and I, like, went behind a rock. But then another group of fishers came so dad like booted her back and like tried to get me back aboard the boat you know and like stop them from going up to like see me there so that was the that was the worst time um but like yeah now that little beach i call it jasmine peed because <laughs> that's where i had to go and oh my goodness what a struggle i had to get back aboard the boat as well because it's a lot different trying to get onto a speedboat from like a rocky beach than it is like on a floating pier style wharf. Um, so it took a few like runs. <laughs> I had to like go back and run and then leap. And then eventually we tied a squid pan with the fish pan to the painter, which is the rope that's on the head of the boat. And so we put that in the water and I could use it as a step. And so I finally got back aboard, but you know, it did take, did take some time off, like, you know, our work time to accommodate me for that need. Um, so yeah, it's just something that like men wouldn't necessarily 
really think of because like well, I know my dad he's like I gotta gotta use bathroom so like I'll just turn around and he'll just you know take care of it like but yeah for me and my mom it can be challenging sometimes especially like, when it comes to our periods like I've never really I, I've been I guess fortunate in that I've never been out in boat and had to deal very much with my period um but you know if it did happen like what would I do with the tampon I can't flush it or do I wear like 40 pads like you know you really got to get creative when it comes to that kind of stuff and thankfully like where it's my family I can be open and being like this is my problem but if I work for strangers I would really be so comfortable being like you know, this is an issue. Give me a, a moment here. I have to go and deal with this. So dirty jokes and such stuff are pretty common around the wharf. And while I, I don't really, it doesn't like offend me as such. Um, but yeah, I definitely do just be like, la, 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 la. And like, sometimes someone will say something to dad and I'll just like, be like, okay, I'm leaving. And I'll just like walk away. So I can definitely see how, especially in like a, um, with a larger employee base like if there was a lot more people on a job site you would have to encounter that a lot more like between our family that that kind of thing doesn't really come into place but when we get back to the wharf there's people's comments and yeah close my ears Heather you wanted to mention something go ahead the amount of women who spoke about um actually just being reminded of their gender in spaces you'd have somebody you know in a workplace or working on a rig or working on on a on the wharf and someone would, a man would curse or they'd say a dirty joke or something and then turn around, oh no, sorry, there's a woman present. And none of the women I talked to saw themselves as like women first. It was always like, no, I'm an engineer. I'm a naval architect. I'm a fisher. I'm this and this and this. But I had actually a, a woman who had worked offshore for 15 years and she said like, you're constantly reminded because people are saying, oh, sorry, like, you know, didn't mean to offend you or, oh, sorry, you know, can't say that in here, there's a woman present or can't be on like that. There's a woman, but like, so it's this constant reaction of like reasserting that you're different. Even if you're senior to them in some place, in some cases, it doesn't matter because you, in their eyes, it's always, you're a woman first and everything else second. It doesn't matter how hard you work because the culture of the environment that you're in was designed by men for men. And you right. are always going to be the outlier because you are a woman. And they are going to see you, whether or not they have a problem with it, they're always going to see you as out of place. Susie, I saw a lot of head shaking you saying yes. Can you talk a little bit first, what drew you to having your own pest control business? Working at a big company with other exterminators, mostly men, is definitely what made me want to leave <laughs> and start my own uh, because of that. Yeah, you're just constantly reminded that you're a woman. And even if you are uh, outperforming, it's, it doesn't matter. Like at the place that I used to work, when the pandemic hit, uh, stuff got really slow because we didn't know what was going on. And I've always been a top performer at work, but I was on the list of people to be laid off. And mm. it was me and three other women and a man. So, and like where I worked, we did have a lot of women uh, as opposed to a lot of other pest control places. But when women make up 20% of your employees, 
but they make up 75% of the people you're threatening with a layoff. Like, that's disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. And so why pest control? Why did you go into that exterminating? I used to be a building manager for a property management company, and I happened to get bed bugs and cockroaches <laughs> at the same time. And uh, the, the lady that was looking after the buildings for that property management company, uh, you know, we kind of struck up a friendship and I was asking her about it and realized, you know, I thought it was kind of neat and that I could do it. And, and uh, it was years after that, that I saw they were hiring and she put in a good word and I got hired. And then it was just, I fell in love. It was so interesting and just, you know, creepy and morbid, but <laughs> just, uh, it's always different. That's what I like. So, <laughs> yeah. And so what kind of reaction do you encounter when people hire you or you show up at a job site? What are you tired of hearing? It's, it's a well-meaning thing that I hear a lot and it mostly comes from women, but, uh, I could never do your job. <laughs> and they, they mean it like, and, and, and they always follow up with like, oh, you're really brave. But at first it's, you know, feels like uh, it's a job I shouldn't do maybe then. But I know that I'm treating them a lot better than a lot of my male counterparts do. So I put up with it. And I, I spoke with a couple of uh, friends of mine who are also uh, business owners in pest control and women before coming on this, just saying, do you have any other experiences that you'd want me to talk about? And it was funny. We all kind of have the same thing. Our customers love us. They're very accepting. It's really rare that we have someone it, out in society that really doesn't want us because we're a woman. It all comes from inside. <laughs> It's all our coworkers. It's all our bosses. That's who makes us feel unwelcome. Wow. That is powerful. It's powerful. And I know one thing that you mentioned to me, Susie, that you wanted to talk about is boundaries. Do you want to talk about mm. that? Do you want to say what you want to say about yeah. boundaries? It was a reason why I had to leave my, my job. Because um, as a woman in a male-dominated career, especially a woman with children, and I have children, so I get that knock against me. But it's that you can't say no. Because if you say no to one job, now they're not going to give you these other jobs. And in pest control, it's, it's uh, salary plus commission, or it's just commission. So it's really these big, big jobs that you might be put on can mean, you know, extra money to pay off debt and <laughs> just maybe go on a vacation or something. But uh, it's very, there's a lot of favoritism and it tends to go to other men <laughs> first and foremost and always the same ones. It's hard when you work somewhere for someone else to make those boundaries because you feel like you can't. You said something also about customer service that you pr provide maybe different customer service than a man. You want to talk about that? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a 
really interesting thing about pest control. And, you know, you're not really seeing people at their best necessarily. If someone <laughs> calls me and they have bed bugs, uh, it's very, very upsetting for them. Is it? Sure. And, and I know because I've been there. I remember what it's like. And, and people don't want to come over to your house. They don't want you to go over to their house. And it's very, there's lots of misinformation too. So when I come to someone's house, I always remember what it was like to have someone coming into my house and doing that to my house and going through my stuff and telling me what to do. And so I try to put myself in their shoes so that I'm not coming in and being like, your house is a disaster and you need to clean. And, you know, I, I have that compassion mm -hmm. and, uh, I would just like to say I have absolutely worked with women that don't have that compassion. <laughs> so it's not like it's just all women are inherently that way. I think it's that that caretaking, how we're socialized. Like if you were brought up in kind of that caretaking socialization as a girl and then you become a woman and yeah, it maybe colors your career. And you take extra care doing that, having that empathy, building that relationship. And that takes time, right? So that takes a little bit more time than a male might dedicate to that relationship building. You do that. And so that, so time is money, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what happens mm -hmm. then? When I was not working for myself, I was very much burning myself out. And, I, and then I would come home and I had nothing nothing to give and in pest control summer is is our busy season so if you're busy in the winter with your like we have accounts that you go to every month without fail then in the summer you have to do all those accounts but you also have to do everything else that comes in you know ants and spiders and wasps and all of that um so when you're trying to give all of that uh while you're on a time constraint, it's, uh, well, if you're like me, then you end up working a 14 hour day and not spending much time with your family. That's gotta be a huge struggle. And when you bring that up to, to management or whatever, it's always like, oh yeah, we'll get you help at some point. <laughs> that doesn't help me now. Right. And also, you know, I, I don't want someone going and dealing with my customers that's not going to give them what I'm giving them because I care <laughs> about them too. Yeah. I think that that's a good lead into Michelle. So Michelle specifically sought out contractors that were women. Listening to all of you speak uh, gives me some sadness because I realized not much has changed. I think I came out of the womb a feminist and uh, interested in things, uh, especially around the sciences and the biological world from a very early age. Uh, and so grew up really pursuing things that nobody else around me was pursuing unless they were retired men and got into uh, the sciences. There were many, many barriers to uh, actually obtaining work back then. A male owner not wanting to hire me for research and development because I just go off and get pregnant. And uh, why would he want to hire a woman to do that? And he told me that point blank right to my face. You were always having to navigate uh, 
And this is what I saw, which I'll talk a little bit more about with the, my experience with the women roofers. But you have to navigate that, uh, especially as a young woman wanting to work in a field and wanting to be part of the culture. Of course, you, you know, you can never really be part of their culture. <laughs> wanting to make it work and trying to fit into the culture of which is, you know, defined by men for men. When I left the sciences, I then went on to become a social worker, and I specialized in gender-based issues uh, when I was in that career before I became an ecological farmer. Here I fast forward to the last 10 years where I purchased land in rural Ontario. It's, uh, I would classify this community as very conservative community. There are some women farmers here. There's not a lot, uh, but in the very local area where I am, um, I think there's, I did things coming in that a lot of people had a lot of issue with (laughs) because I was trying to farm organically and uh, other things like uh, working with oxen, things like that. So it's challenging a lot of ideas around farming and as who I am here. So the other thing that was has been an interesting challenge for me living in this rural community is that there aren't a lot of options when you need work done. So when you need renovation work or whatever, uh, I tend to find that it's all men. Uh, There's just a few options on who you have. Sometimes I get a challenge in the in the approach that men might have coming onto my farm to do work, not all men by any means, but uh, you are dependent on a few rural businesses and they're all the same guys, right? I did try to hire local uh, men for roofing here. I didn't really feel like it was going to go well. That really got me thinking about why could I not try and find a woman roofer? And so I actually spent months trying to find a woman roofer. First, um, going on Facebook, talking to different businesses, then trying to contact local construction pages. I started uh, emailing around even to the... um, Canadian Women's Roofing Association, which I thought would have been like so glad to hear from me. After months of contacting many, many people, not a single response, like zero responses. And I had said in them, look, I have this uh, beautiful organic farm. And why don't we use this opportunity to promote women in roofing? Uh, All I need is you to hook me up. (laughs) And uh Eventually, somehow I stumbled upon a woman with a handle called Roofer Girl. (laughs) And uh, her name is Samantha Large. And she has a huge following. And she had just come from out out west where she had uh, women and was running her own roofing business. And uh, had been asked by some sponsors of roofing tools, prime tools, to come to Ontario. And so she had really set up her business here. The first time I didn't really get a response, but I tried her again. She wasn't really sort of maybe totally convinced about the whole idea, but I gave it a third try (laughs) and tried to talk to her about what, how great it would be if we could have an event with women on the roof. And, uh, um, 
I am so very grateful to Samantha that she took it on and uh, uh, she had the connections. So she had hired women from out West and she knew some women uh, locally as well, local as in, in Ontario. And so what ended up happening is 13 women, some of them flying right across Canada and her sponsor paid for their flights. So they all landed on my roof and, uh, the promotion was fantastic. Uh, there was a documentary that's in process that will be going to, that's getting ready to be shown on television about uh, the women roofing here. So they got sponsorships and uh, I had this tremendous event that where all these women came and in two days did an extremely challenging roof. So I have an 1843 house. It's a very steep, a steep sto uh, roof, story and a half uh, building. And uh, they had to strip it all down, put on new plywood, all new plywood, and re-shingle it. And it, it's very, very steep. And um, it was an amazing, amazing experience for so many reasons. Like I was just things I didn't anticipate was the women themselves. Uh, it was the first time they told me they had ever worked with other women. So these are women who've been working with other businesses. Uh, and all of them were on male teams. Some of them expressed ambivalence about uh, coming in and working with other women because they didn't know what to expect or whether they would be accepted. The feedback I got from them was they just thought it was like an extremely positive experience where women were working together cooperatively. And uh, they um, so they really, really enjoyed that experience. The other thing that was very amazing and I did not anticipate was the male reaction to what was happening. I really, really didn't want this to be turned into something where women were sexualized or, you know, made out differently. I really wanted this to be promoting women's skill and ability uh, to do this work. And I really felt the timing of it was very important because there is a lot of, um, workplaces looking to hire. And so I thought the timing was right for an event like this, where we, you know, it's, I, we don't want women being looked at as, okay, well, we have no men to hire, let's hire women. But it does open the door to getting women into that environment and seeing what's possible. So I really wanted it to be an inspirational event. Um, the, what really surprised me was um, a lot of men's reactions. So I had several men tell me that they would love to hire women because they're very tired of the male culture when they hire contractors or people to come into the in, like come into their home. And I actually hadn't considered that at all. Uh, so that was quite a surprise. And I also had several. Um, men that own roofing businesses saying they would love to have uh, all women teams. All the women that came to do the roofing, they were all young women. You have to be really physically fit to do that work. And uh, it was clear to me that those women had never really considered about promoting themselves. And so the really exciting part was when they stopped and were having lunch or whatever uh, at the farm here in between working uh, was 
that they were getting all kinds of ideas about how to promote themselves and, and how, how unique it was. And I thought that was really, really a wonderful outcome. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. One thing I want to mention is that Samantha is actually an Indigenous woman. I'm going to um, bring it back to Jasmine because we haven't heard too much from her. Thank you, Michelle. And congratulations. And you actually made that happen. And that's extraordinary. Jasmine was covered by the CPC and her mom. A few years ago now, did you fall into literally fishing? I mean, because it's a family thing or why did you decide to come back and get into it? Like it can be pretty much summed up as a space was made for me. Um, so my parents asked me to come and work for them. At the time I was in Mun, um, and the summer before that I had helped them uh, building their house. And then when I was at Mun, I took a boat building course that was offered through the Wooden Boat Museum and the faculty, I guess you'd say, of education. Um, so through that process, um, the boat builder is Jerome, and he's actually from Marachine Island, which is in Pazentia Bay. Um, so yeah, my family, I'm a fifth generation Pazentia Bay fish harvester. Um, so yeah, like I guess like connecting with Jerome and reconnecting with like wooden boat heritage and stuff like that, it really got my my parents kind of back in the past too. So I think like through demonstrating competence and interest, um, plus my mom, you know, she wanted more help um, too. So that it just made a space. So I think it could be easily just described as a space was made, a place at the table was set for me. Um, you know, I did try crab fishing in 2009. It was just that one, um, one season, but I wasn't as serious about it. But now it's like my intended full-time career forever. So hopefully that will work out for me. Um, but that's really what it was. Like you can't get a fishing, like you, to become an apprentice, you have to have someone to sponsor you. And the like the pool of candidates like is very small. There's not a lot of people who have a young person in their family, um, you know, who is interested. And like, unless you have a man, like a, like a father or a partner or someone who's willing to take you on in that setting, uh, you really like, you know, there's loads of money and all that stuff, but it's really getting the sea time and getting the experience. Like that's where the big challenge is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't buy an enterprise if you don't have the sea time. So you have to start as an apprentice and then level one. And then once you reach the level two, uh, then you're eligible to like buy your fishing license. Um, so yeah, you just really can't get involved with the fishery unless you know a man who's willing to take that risk. And if you think about it, like the um, average age of fish harvesters in this province is about like 65 years old. So it can be a big risk for, uh, like an individual. Most people work by themselves. So to take on a stranger and like not being sure about what their skills are, if they know how to be safe aboard a boat, it can be a really big risk. Uh, so there's a whole lot of different factors there that involve like barriers to women in the fishery, but yeah, simply just, they made the space and that's how I got involved. And listening to Susie's experience and then listening to Michelle's experience from a few sides, what observations did you agree with, Jasmine? I mean, what resonated with you and, and, and what, you know, what made you like nod your head and, and say, oh, yeah, that me too kind of thing? Yeah, mostly when it comes to your interactions with other people and the way they perceive you, whether it be through your gender or um, your ability, which is connected to gender, because there's a perception that women are physically 
less, um, which simply isn't always the case. Like there are many men who are much smaller than me and much less interested in hard labor. I love hard labor. I cannot survive in retail or office type environments. Like I thrive. If you say go break those rocks, I'm breaking them. Um, like my hobbies involve work. Like I'm very work oriented. I love the split wood perceptions of people, the things they say, whether they're well-meaning or not. Um, you know, that's very similar. So to bring it back to the CBC article, um, a few years ago, the broadcast, Jane Aidy interviewed me and my mom about, you know, what we were doing. And it was a lovely article. We had a beautiful time with Jane. She is a fantastic journalist. And the article that she produced was beautiful. But there was comments that were weird. <laughs> so a lot of people made assumptions about me and about my parents. And I don't really care what you say about me. But if you come from my mom, oh, I'm not going to be happy. So they were saying that, like, my parents should be encouraging me to get an education. I have a diploma from college, and I have half of a Bachelor's of Arts. I'm very well educated. Uh, so that's completely absurd to suggest that there is something wrong with pursuing a career in the fishery, which puts food on people's plates. Like, that was, like, hurtful and ignorant. So there's a lot of comments like that. And then there's a perception that women only fishes for the EI. Um, there's there's many articles written about that kind of thing. So, you know, people were making assumptions that I only did this just so I could get, get my stamps, as they say, and I don't actually work. Uh, let me tell you, they wouldn't be able to do it without me. So I guarantee I do work. Um, but those kind of ignorant comments. Um, but I was able to actually use that to my advantage um, because a little while after that, I did another talk um, at MUN uh, through the Harris Center and I used the comments that I collected and I put them in a screen, like a PowerPoint presentation, and I destroyed them. <laughs> so I used those things as talking points uh, for that talk. And I think that was very, um, very successful. It illustrated really well, like what kind of challenges that women can face. And of course, we talked about other things like gear and finding appropriate safety clothes and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, for sure, that's what stuck out most from like Susie and Michelle's experience is just your interactions with people, what their perceptions are, and like what they aren't afraid to say sometimes. Yeah, go go ahead, Heather. Jasmine is amazing. I just want to throw that out there. She's like a rock star, and I'm obsessed. Every time she's on CBC, anytime she talks about anything, anytime she's on Twitter ripping someone apart, I'm there, front row center. It's great. Um, <laughs> But what I wanted to say is a couple of things. First of all, um, Jasmine's comment about the perception um, that women fish for their EI, uh, that's really rooted here in Newfoundland, Labrador, out of the cod moratorium. When the cod fishery collapsed in the early 1990s, a lot of families lost their main source of income. And I'm going to be grossly generalizing this, but uh, there were some government programs that came out to try to retrain people or try to move people into other lines of work. And what a lot of families did when other fisheries started to open up was they took on family as crew, because it meant if you're in a lot of cases, your wife was working with you, then it was one less crew hand you had to pay. But it meant that you had a lot of families where you would get your hours. And then the assumption was the women would stop working and then go collect their EI because there were support programs to help keep these families afloat because they weren't making the same money they were in the cod fishery. Um, and that is a stereotype that continues, as Jasmine pointed out today, and I heard it from participants during my research as well, that 
they would go on a boat. And I had one woman who has fished uh, for, I believe, at least the last 10 years with her partner. And uh, her friend from within her community uh, confronted her and basically said, you're making a fool out of us. Why are you why are you going to work? Like, why can't you stay ashore and do a different job? And she said, well, he needs my help. Like, this is my job. And her friend was adamant. No, you're making a fool of us because there were all these other women in the community who were staying home and she making the choice to go out and fish because that's what she wanted to do. That was something she loved to do um, was seen as somehow less than. And the other thing, and I remember reading the comments Jasmine referenced about her education, the amount of training that you have to do to be at all competent in fishing, just baseline competence. Never mind the certifications you have to train for. Never mind if you decide that you want to be a skip, like a captain of your own boat, you have to go and do courses, you have to do work, you have to get sea time. Like, this isn't something, this isn't like in Ontario where people are going up to the cottage and like, and you know, fishing on the lake on the weekends. Um, it's not just a matter of we get a rod, we get a boat, and we go out. There's so much more to commercial fishing that I think a lot of people don't realize. And that is unfortunately a historical, cultural thing here that a lot of women who get into that line of work continue to struggle against. The average age is 65. Our, our fishing population of active fishers are not young. Women like Jasmine are what is going to continue to carry this forward as time goes on. And if we don't have the systems and the culture shifts in place to actually facilitate their development and encourage them to go out on the water, it'll just die. The licenses will be bought up by big commercial outfits and that'll be it. The things that they say, Jasmine, you were mentioning and, and, Susie, I'm sure you get some comments too, making assumptions about your sexuality, making assumptions about anything about you, anything that they want to make assumptions about, they do. It's easy to say, oh, you know, just ignore them. But those things sting. Like, I mean, and they stick with you. How do you deal with that? Sometimes uh, as a woman, you can... If you change your appearance, things like that stop happening as much. Uh, I was talking with one of my friends today, and her and I have had opposite things happen where uh, she's kind of put on a little bit of weight and she's looking less femme. And now she's finding she's being harassed less. And I did the opposite thing just recently. I lost like 50 pounds and I grew my hair out and 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 it was like, oh, whoa, people used to, like, not make these comments at me before. Now I look more feminine. So now I get more of the, like, oh, do you need help moving that? And, like, no, I don't. Like, if I was a man, like, I'm a big woman. I'm five foot ten and 180 pounds. If, if a man came into the house that size, you wouldn't ask him if he needed help moving a couch. Why are you asking me? Jasmine, what about you? What are some of the things that you've had to deal with? Most of the stuff I've encountered is pretty much like online. Um, there is a big percentage of women who fish in Placentia Bay. There are a good few uh, women who own the enterprise. So when I started recently in, like, I guess it was 2019, 
um, with the crab, the very first person that I saw on the wharf that day was a woman. Her name is Madonna. And she like opened up the truck and looked at me. She's like, oh girl, you're froze. And she started like dressing me and getting my gear on me. And, you know, so like it is um, a lot more common like for women, um, you know, to be involved actively in the fishery here in Placentia Bay. And I think it is increasing a lot throughout the province. Um, We still have a very low number of women who own the enterprise, but there are a lot of women on the wharfs, whether it be working on the boats or as dockside monitors, or with the fish plants. So I can't think of anything like specific in the fishing job. Meeting people like face to face, it's usually pretty good. Um, but yeah, the comments and stuff online every now and again. Um, but I do. I'm really quick with the block. So pretty much anyone who would say anything rude to me, I just they can't communicate with me at all. So I don't even have to look at that stuff, which is great. Michelle, I am so sorry. To you. That's okay. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, and actually, this is a lovely segue to what I wanted to ask Jasmine. Jasmine, I'm very curious about your mom. And, and now that you've spoken more, I can I see that your mom and, and the culture where you are immediately, there are women in the field that you're working in. Was your mom one of the first women to go in it or for generations have women in your area been involved with the fisheries? Uh, my mom is probably one of the only women I knew like as a child who was on the boats, but there's always been women involved. Like my nan, Paul, like she held a professional fishing license and she did go uh, fishing with my pop. Uh, however, my pop passed away uh, in 1993. So I never got to witness her in that role. Um, But like both of them like worked in fish processing. My mom's mom, she worked at the fish plant, Um, you know, and like a lot of women have worked traditionally in the fishery on the shore in in the making of the fish. So what that means is that um, codfish would be split and salted and dried. So it was usually women and children who would take in the work of moving it, rotating it, making sure it doesn't get wet and stacking it and stuff like that. So there is a very strong history. of women in the fishery um, in Newfoundland Labrador, but it's often overlooked or uh, maybe you could say tokenified or something like that. Um, And it's not really talked about in a meaningful kind of way. Um, There are books that have been written. One of my favorite is called More Than 50%. And in that book, they very explicitly state that there would be no fishery if it wasn't for women. I'm going to give you each a a chance to tell people listening, what would you like them to do today to advance women in non-traditional roles, period, non-traditional professions? What message do you want people uh, to take away today? Take it away, Heather. Two main things. First is that things will not change overnight, um, but things also won't change if uh, the way things are aren't challenged. For folks to know that if you work in a non-traditional sector and you work with women, call people out on the stupid comments. Call people out when they're acting inappropriately. Some of the best stories I heard from uh, participants in my in my field work were, and it's depressing that this is the case, uh, women who spoke really highly of 
people who let them do their job. Um, so Susie spoke to this as well. And, uh, and Jasmine, you know, having people say, Oh, do you need help with that? Oh, do you need me to help you or to lift that for you or pick that up? Let them do their job. Assume that first and foremost, they're there because they're experts and they know what they're doing. Support the women in your lives who want to go into non-traditional work. That's great advice. Susie's next. Go ahead, Susie. I think also um, expanding the infrastructure that supports women, uh, because a lot of women tend to be the primary caretaker. Not all of us have husbands that uh, work different times than we do to take care of the children or daycare might not necessarily be affordable or accessible. So I think that is something that, be, yeah, with this labor shortage, something that needs to be invested in more is like the childcare aspect of it. So women that work on call, like if you were an HVAC technician as a woman and a single mom, what are you going to do when you are on call and you don't have someone to watch your kid? It's stuff that not everybody thinks about. Another thing with getting more women into trades is the visibility aspect of it. If more women were going to do like career days at an elementary school to show women, like like I did that uh, a couple of years ago, I went and talked at a high school about being an exterminator and I brought all the little nifty things for the kids to see. and. And just those, that's a classroom of children that saw a woman doing a job that they wouldn't have thought a woman could do. Uh, there's two things that I would like to see predominantly happen. One is that businesses that are in the non-traditional trades uh, need to look at two things. They need to look at uh, the barriers to entry uh, into those trades for women. And they also need to look at... Um, what it's going to take to retain women. And that really, really means, and I think especially for things like construction, and I don't want to be speaking for uh, cultures I'm not specifically in, but I can imagine and have heard that th like the roofing culture, construction culture, other non-traditional cultures for women have a culture that is a barrier to women being an equal participant. And so I would love to see out of, um, all of this, that uh, pe uh, people running businesses in the non-traditional trades ask themselves, how can we recruit women and how can we retrain them? And that includes very much looking at changing the culture within so that they are inclusive to women and reflective of an equal value. I would like to see more women supporting women. The time has come for where women are starting to do that. And I would like to see a lot more of that. You may want to prefer a woman to come in to do non-traditional trade work. And, uh, you know, why not ask for that? Why not um, look for that and try to foster women in, and also recognize as a woman the barriers that women face in going into these trades. So anything people can do to be supportive towards um, making it more equal for women to participate is, um, I think, going to be important. Thank you, Michelle. People listening, what would you like to tell them? You know, what would you like to leave them with? 
it's important. Like everything that everyone said was super great. Like, yes, all of those things are so important. Child care, especially making space, inviting women to discuss things. Like I've had opportunities to do that as well. And kids love it. And I love it when the kids love it. Um, but like women and like women identified people, any marginalized person, we don't face barriers or have inequality because there is a actual difference. Like these things are imposed on women through socialization. Um, so I think that's the most important thing to think about is that it's like women aren't, aren't disadvantaged because they're always smaller or because they have to like take care of kids. Like these are things that are social constructs and we need to really analyze and think about that. And like, why do we feel these ways that we feel? And we need to use our own critical thinking um, when when we're talking about women or any marginalized person when it comes to work, you know, because it, it, like that is what is the main thing. Like, what are our presumptions? Like, what do we think? Like, how how do how does our ideas of who or what a woman is supposed to be? Um, be causing barriers or problems for people who are just simply trying to do their job. So, you know, if you see a woman working, just let her do it. You know, you don't have to step in. And if you do find yourself to be curious about why they're doing or what they're doing, don't say something like, well, why don't you do this? Or you would say you should say something like, that's really interesting. Can you tell me more about why you're interested in this career? Or, you know, that kind of thing. It's just like, look at the way that you start your conversation. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Questions are awesome. Most people like to talk about what they do and why they do it. But you just have to think about, like, how you're asking the question. Is what I'm saying going to be unintentionally hurtful? And how can I have a more productive conversation about this new could be a new topic that's really interested to me? So, yeah, I think that's it. Like, you know think critically about what how you understand the world and keep in mind that not everyone is going to be the same every culture is different um i had an experience where i was teaching um with fishing for success and that's a group that i volunteer with and so i was talking about uh, codfish and like the, their body parts their organs and for one of the very first times like all of the men in that audience deferred to me as the authority, because I was the person who was put there to talk to them about that. So like, and these were, these were men who were at Mon and engineering and they were from different countries. I think South African countries. Uh, I don't remember now, um, especially where, but like just the fact that there were these people who were unknown to me, who were men who were in a different kind of like engineering is usually seen like above, you know, the arts and stuff like that. So I'm a bachelor of arts student. And, but they just deferred to me. Like they said, they, they, they recognized me as the person who was put there to teach and they just deferred to me as the authority. They didn't like look to Leo who is a more experienced fisher than me. Like I was the one showing them. So they listened and like, that's what you got to do. Just sometimes you just got to shut up and listen and people will tell you what their needs are. Um, don't stand in the way, make the space and just use your critical thought to analyze the situation and question what you think you know, and then you'll get to learn more. The barriers are there. Like, like we make those barriers and it's so true. And, and like it affects men too. As, as soon as I started doing this kind of career, I started making more money than my husband. And so then my husband started 
to be the one that when the kids were sick, he stayed home. And, and some of that also had to do with the fact that I needed to be available for work if I wanted to continue to get work, right? <laughs> um, because if I started to say no, because my kids were sick, you know, but uh, it started to affect my husband's career too, because then people would say, oh, well, how come your wife isn't staying home with the kids? Like, well, she makes more money than me, so she's going to work and I'm staying home. (laughs) But it's like that kind of stuff has to happen too, where men are saying like, whatever, it has no, is not make me less of a man that my wife does this. Like, Yeah, we need allies. I think that's really important. And I think you've all kind of touched on that, that we need men to be part of the conversation. We need men to be allies. Uh, we need, like you said, Heather, we, all of you have said it. We need men to speak up. We need men to call it out. Um, we need strong husbands like Susie's that say, you know, she makes more money. Like, I mean, you know, I'm, why is it my responsibility as a male to always be at work. Why does the why does my wife have to stay at home? Why does my partner have to stay at home? They're all really good questions and really good conversations. Thank you um, so much to everyone for your time today, but especially for your courage to talk about it. It's what we need to hear. Uh, it's what people need to hear. And uh, I'm just so glad to know you. So thank you so much for your time. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Munsee Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season And as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 